Welcome to the second conversation in our webinar series, Leadership Perspectives for a Changing World. With over 7 million people diagnosed with COVID-19 and over 400,000 deaths globally, it is no surprise that all eyes are fixed with hope and anticipation on the scientific community and the pharmaceuticals industry. Today, we have a stellar panel sharing their thoughts on how science and business are collaborating to develop vaccines and drugs to combat the pandemic. And with that, I'd like to welcome Professor Tarun Khanna to set the context and introduce the panel. Thank you, Nakshi. You know, we like to say at Harvard that our mission is to educate leaders of all sorts who try to make a difference in the world. And I hope that this small but important orchestration on our part is a step in the right direction. As Nakshi said, it's a really sobering time in the world. But without belaboring the obvious crisis that we're in the middle of both health and economic, let me just turn to introduce Umang Bora, who is the Managing Director and Global CEO of CIPLA. CIPLA doesn't work in vaccines per se. It's one of the leading firms in the world on ensuring access to high-quality, low-cost medication to the developing populations of the world. So he's going to pick up on the possibilities of science and talk about the role that the private sector can play. So with that introduction, I will go to Umang. So Tarun, thank you for having me on this panel. I represent CIPLA, which has years and years of uh, experience in treating HIV, antimicrobial resistance. We also sell vaccines, but we don't make vaccines. And so some of the comments that I'm going to make today are really around what does it take to move from the hope that the vaccine offers to a point where vaccination or other treatments deliver lasting cure. So let's start with that. I think I'm going to take on lessons that we've picked up through this in our practice in Asia, in Africa, maybe other parts of the world. But I'm also going to argue that this is perhaps the first times in the world and at this scale of 8 billion people that you're going to have an adult vaccination program. So keep that in mind. You know, child immunization is different. Adult vaccination is different. And in some way, the pharmaceutical industry has dealt with this before when it tried to find cures for diseases like HIV, etc. So I'm going to talk a little about that. But I'd just like to say these are all my learnings and we're humbled every year with something new that we pick up and how we need to tweak models to make sure that care reaches where it needs to. I do want to talk right at the beginning about this balance between equitable access and in some way vaccine nationalism. And I think there's a way out there. And again, it's, it's out of the lessons that we've had uh, working in some of these markets. The second theme I do want to talk about is availability and affordability. And that necessarily does not mean access. And the third thing that I would always advocate is there has to be a plan. You know, I'm as hopeful as Dr. Kang and David are about having the vaccine, but it's going to be four years, five years before everyone gets vaccinated and the world still has to live with this disease till then. And we don't even know if there's immunity that's going to be guaranteed for a very long period of time with each vaccine. So let me start with the first, and this is really about achieving this balance between equitable access and vaccine nationalism. And I think it's an important point for most governments to consider because if the emerging side of the world and the developed side of the world are on opposite sides of this equation. I think the emerging side of the world always thinks about the developed side of the world arguing for vaccine nationalism. Actually, it should be just the other way around. I think it's the emerging side of the world that needs to argue for vaccine nationalism. The more the emerging side of the world argues for its own sources of medicine, the faster is it going to be easier to eradicate this. So other than India, there's no other big emerging market. Now, of course, China's coming in as well, but there's no other big emerging market that has 
enormous amounts of vaccine production. And I think that's something for everyone to think about. Not only is it for vaccines, even for pharmaceutical drugs, we see very little self-sufficiency across the world to do this. And I'm going to argue that the government's had a very, very large role to play in this. So I think there are models today around the world where multinational organizations are willing to share technology if there are local players who can take that forward and begin to mass produce in their country. We're seeing that happen for several other drugs in HIV. And I think the model exists, but the model has to be taken forward by the emerging side of the world. And manufacturing is a very big role for that. And most countries need to be a lot more vocal for being local or being vocal as in regionally cooperating. So I think if you're more vocal for local, we tend to see a huge amount of correlation between governments that set up manufacturing in their countries vis-a-vis -vis finding an ultimate cure for the diseases that trouble them. So for example, take Uganda, take South Africa. They were seized with this AIDS epidemic. They set up manufacturing to deal with it. And there's enough amount of government skin in the game to tackle the situation. So I'm going to say that that is almost going to become a necessary condition if vaccines have to take center stage as the amount of money and research in vaccines needs to go up. The biggest role that needs to be played is by governments. And sadly, today, a lot of governments rely on global funding, which is my next point, to take this forward. So I want to talk about global funding because I think, you know, we're at a very weird sort of a place in history. And again, we're taking parallels from some of the other diseases that got the benefit of global funding. We're at a place where globalization is retreating, where the WHO funding is in question. And we have to think about this and say if HIV was eliminated, a lot of that had to do with PEPFAR and how the U.S. government basically bankrolled a lot of this funding under this whole theme of a threat anywhere is a threat everywhere. We're pretty much at the same stage here, except that the large funder governments are beginning to have thoughts about whether and how much they want to contribute to this overall problem. If there is no viable funding mechanism, I think it's going to be almost impossible to tackle this because no private player who has responsibilities to the shareholders. And, you know, remember, it's not just the big pharma companies that have to do this. These are ancillary units as well. The whole ecosystem for vaccine delivery or the whole ecosystem for fundamentally uh, delivering care has to be very different. We find that just the medicine cost of delivery of HIV and other drugs to some of the countries in the world is 25% of their component. It's just the freight cost of moving product from a manufacturing site to a country that it needs to be used. And that's what we mean when we say that if countries begin to become more vocal for local manufacturing, it's going to make a difference to the progression of the disease. So I'm going to talk a little about vaccine strategy as well. I think the two sides of the world solve for very different things. There's one side of the world which is solving for speed, which is the innovators and, and the people who are discovering this. And if you really go back to the swine flu epidemic, it's pretty much the same names coming out. Novartis, AstraZeneca is there, GSK is there. There's no difference in the, in the quality of the names that are coming out. But you have to ask, what level of vaccination success happened with respect to swine flu in the developed markets versus 11 years later in the developing markets of the world? Those two are very different in terms of overall outcomes. And I think the reason is that the emerging side of the world needs to actively sign up for access. But I think the outcomes are very different. The Western side of the world has the benefit of concentration, has the benefit of well-set-up healthcare systems. But it's really, the story starts from the availability of a vaccine to mass vaccination or to mass cure, as you would talk about other diseases, only when the entire road is lined. So I think availability and affordability are very important. And there's no doubt about it. I think the hope starts once the vaccine is cured, is available. But I'm going to argue that access is not equal solely to availability and affordability. And we've learned this the hard way. Our data suggests that the cost of cure is only 50% of the total system cost. Right? So even if you have drug delivered in Uganda, 50% of the rest of the cost is just the total system cost to bring this drug 
to market that governments and other private players need to have. So the funding model we spoke about is very important. And even then, the outcomes are very different. So in South Africa, we have 4 million out of the 7 million people currently using antiretroviral drugs for HIV. And you would think HIV is life-threatening. Why would anyone not naturally go there? And I think that's the complication of trying to get a global effort, which starts off from development all the way to commercialization. There has to be solid private-public government participation over here. Private parties take the lead when funding models are very clear, when the government guarantees off-takes, and when the government has stake in manufacturing. I think the other thing that we've learned, which is also fairly significant within this overall availability plus affordability does not equal access thing, is that in trying to bring a vaccine or a cure to people versus bringing people to take the cure, I think it's always the former that wins. Fundamentally, the role of communities is exceedingly important, enabling any kind of mass cure or mass vaccination program. And there's this old saying that, you know, the AIDS activists have developed over a period of time, and which is whatever is done without communities is done against communities. Right? So I think something to think about the role of the community in doing this. And, you know, one great example that we do at CIPLA is we have this pickup point for even delivering HIV medicines, which is right in the center of communities. I think the experience of polio in India and how we've been able to eradicate is pretty much the same. So I would just say that, you know, this whole thing of the community, the government, the pharmaceutical manufacturers, that's 50% of the effort over and above the vaccine and its cure. And the last thing I want to talk about is this whole thing about Plan B. I hope the vaccines work, but realistically, we've had HIV and we've had no vaccine for it. We had dengue and we've had a vaccine just last year for it. There's a lot of hope and I hope it works, but the world has to live with supportive care till everyone gets vaccinated. And I think that's the very, very important point that we need to think about, that for three years or four years, people still have to be cured, treated, till they get a vaccine shot. And we have no clarity today on what levels of immunity the vaccine provides over a longer period of time. It could be for a year, it could be three years, it could be boosted doses. And so all of what we're tabulating in terms of available capacity, you know, the first set of people get vaccinated by the time the second comes, the first needs another shot. There is going to be a need for higher levels of capacity. So I'm going to argue about having equal amounts of money, if not more, for the pharmaceutical industry to think of antiviral drugs, to think of repurposed medicines that could cure this. Because I think true cure comes when antiviral therapy is available across an oral vaccine that you can take any now and then versus something that is administered once a while and gives you immunity is always another good, solid option for plan B. The vaccine offers a huge amount of hope to the world. The translation of that hope to reality is something that's accomplished with the enterprise of private businesses that depends tremendously on funding, guaranteed government offtake. Governments in the game because of being vocal for their local needs in terms of manufacturing. It's about the role of communities and also it's about disaggregating the overall vaccine chain or the overall pharmaceutical chain from what happens in the West, the other sides of the world. Hoping that we get through this very quickly and wishing every healthcare worker a deep sense of gratitude.